0: Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you today. Go ahead and uh, take a look at the message for today. You can take out your message insert. I think that'll help you follow along. We've been looking through God's famous last words in the book of Revelation, and we today are arriving at what uh, I think is the pinnacle moment of God's famous last words in this book, and that is the moment of salvation. Now, we began weeks ago uh, with the the first vision that's presented in the book of Revelation. That's a vision of Jesus Christ and What we see in that vision is the way Jesus looks from the perspective of heaven. And we saw why it is that we are told that every knee will bow, every knee will buckle at the sight of Jesus Christ. The next vision we looked at was we saw the churches uh, as heaven sees them, lampstands of God's light in this world. And then we got a glimpse of heaven itself, gathered around the throne of God in worship. And an invitation was given to us to join in with this worship And then after that, our attention was directed back to earth, and we saw the four horsemen of the apocalypse waging the war of evil that has marked all of human history. We saw the the elements of that war and how they continue to be featured uh, throughout human history. And then the next vision we saw was in response to this evil, the prayers of God's people are sent heavenward. And so we got a glimpse of what prayer looks like from heaven's perspective. To us, prayer looks like, well, maybe a feeble last-ditch effort cry for help. But in heaven, prayer touches off a thunder and lightning level response. But instead of removing us from evil, as many of the prayers are requesting, God instead instructs his people to give witness to the truth about him. That was the next vision we looked at. And that witnessing tends to touch off the conflict that is behind every conflict. And so in the next vision, we saw that behind the politics of this world, is a great clash between the two kingdoms behind everything in this world. And that is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, who is called the prince of this world. And then it's at this point in the book of Revelation that our view is directed from the seven themes that have and will continue to dominate human history. And we move away from those seven themes to the three themes that will mark the end of history as we know it. And the first of these final three themes is a description of the judgment of God on all the evil that is in this world, and it's what we looked at last week. Finally, the not fair call for justice that begins early in life is addressed in God's final judgment. But as we watch this final judgment, we recognize that true justice cuts both ways. And so we find ourselves not only cheering for justice as victims, but also fearing it as perpetrators. And so much to our relief, we are now next shown a vision of God's great salvation. And this, as I said, is the pinnacle of the entire book. Everything is building up to this point. Salvation really is the the continental divide for all of humanity. And that's why out of all of the images that you see, the words represent on the stage, we've put salvation in the very middle. This is the center line. This is the pinnacle, the big decision that everyone must face. Now, the salvation of God in the book of Revelation is presented to us in three parts, three scenes. And the first scene, the first part, begins where judgment left off. And we represent, or we see represented, first of all, the fact that salvation is an answer to a catastrophe. We don't properly understand salvation until we understand the catastrophe that salvation comes to answer. So number one is the answer to a catastrophe. Here's what we read in Revelation 19, verses 1 through 2. After this... I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven, shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are His judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. Now, if Revelation was set to music, this would be the crescendo moment. This would be when the orchestra sounds would swell and everyone watching would lean forward in their chairs. But as we think about the topic of salvation, we have to admit that most people, including ourselves sometimes, we tend to hear this greatest of all news with a kind of an underwhelming response. Now why is that? Well, I think the reason for us is because this is not the only offer of salvation on the table. This is not the first time we've been offered salvation. In fact, our culture regularly uses the word save or salvation to pitch all kinds of things to us. And so we're we're kind of overpromised in the area of salvation. And particularly whenever we go through an election cycle, we are promised a great amount of salvation. I mean on election day, this was the front page of the Orange County Register on that Tuesday. Here it is. Everything is at stake. Now that's in quotes because that's what President Trump said the day before. He encouraged everyone to get out and vote because he said everything is at stake. Well, a lot's at stake, but really everything is at stake. And then on that same day, a group of NFL players, encouraging people to get out and vote, said that their very lives depended on the election. Now that's that's a dire statement. And this is the kind of exaggerated language that we have come to expect. Because if what we really need is salvation in the political process, what does that make politicians? saviors. And so you see this language over and over again, especially in election cycle. I mean, remember the propositions that we all voted on? Rarely would you see what the topic actually was. You were invited to save yourself. I mean, Proposition 10 was about rent control, but the way I heard it said over and over again in print and on TV was, save your house and then when it came to Proposition 6, remember that was about gas tax. And in that one, we were, it was all about saving your what? Wallet. That's what I heard again. Save your wallet. And then Proposition 8, that was about dialysis and the attempt to try to maybe reduce some cost of dialysis or at least the profits at the centers. And all we heard was these poor dialysis patients telling us if we voted wrong on this, they would be dead. So it was all about saving dialysis patients. But you know, it's been two weeks since the election and nothing in my life has changed. (laughs) Nothing. Now, I'm not saying that the election wasn't important and there weren't important things at stake, but it turns out that not everything was at stake and that we really didn't need all of the saving that the politicians promised to us. Now, we've heard this offer before. And so it's no wonder that when God talks about salvation, the response is, well, it's kind of muted. And so most have decided that when it comes to saving, the only saving they really need is the kind that they do for themselves. But in Revelation, that's not at all how salvation is presented. It's not how heaven sees salvation. Heaven looks down on an earth, we are told, that, that has been corrupted, it says, by the adulteries of the great prostitute. That's the condition of our earth, of our lives. And we looked at the fact last week that adultery is at the heart of every sin. It's the primary image or analogy that's used to describe what really drives sin and the effect that it has on our relationship with God. Sin in the Bible is, well, it's the decision to cheat on God with another lover. That's what's at the heart of sin. So sin does to us and to our world what adultery does to a marriage. It is catastrophic. It destroys marriages. You know, the post-adultery question is this. Can this marriage be what? Saved. Not can this marriage be improved. That maybe is a later question, but first, the first question is, is it over? Can it be saved? And the reason this question is asked is because at that point, the point of adultery, the relationship is over. The promise has been broken. It is lost and must be found. The marriage is broken and must be pieced back together again. The relationship is dead and must be brought back to life. And if the offended party is not able to or willing to forgive the adultery, then the marriage will be, well, it'll be forever lost and broken and dead. This is what sin does to the world. This is the image that we're given. The earth has been corrupted by the adulteries, we are told, of the great prostitute. Now, the word corrupt means to spoil. It's kind of like what happens to milk when it goes sour. Now, when milk goes sour, not all of the milk is bad, but there's enough sourness in it that, well, what do you do with a carton of milk that's gone sour? You just have to throw the whole thing out. You can't separate, you pull out the sourness from the milk. It's gone bad. So it's all thrown out. And this is what sin does to us and to our world. Sin is not just like a piece of mold on an otherwise good chunk of cheese. You, know, you just kind of carve it out, and the rest of it's good to go. No, no sin is, has a corrupting effect. It, it gets into whatever it touches, and it spoils it. We can't just scrape it off and go on. It's very much like adultery. It, it ruins the entire relationship. There may be other parts of the relationship that are good, but it sours, it corrupts the whole relationship. Now, for us, we haven't just sinned once. We've sinned repeatedly. We've cheated on God repeatedly. And we don't just have one sin. Well, to be honest, we've, we have many lovers that we have put above God because the great prostitute that we looked at last week, offers many other options other than God. So how many affairs does it take to end a marriage? Well, one is enough to end a marriage. But certainly, repeated adultery is a death blow. This is why the whole earth has been corrupted. It is over between us and God, all of us and God. You know, the judgment described in the previous three chapters that we looked at last week, therefore, is the only reasonable response to our unfaithful ways. But thankfully, when it comes to us, God is not entirely reasonable. And that's because for a reason that I don't know that we'll ever understand, He has decided to love us. He has decided to offer us salvation. We saw earlier in the book of Revelation that the central figure in all of history is Jesus Christ. And therefore, it's fitting that the central figure in this entire book is Jesus Christ. In fact, His name is featured in the first verse of the book and the last verse of the book, Revelation 1.1 and Revelation 22.21. And His name, Jesus, means what He does. The name Jesus means the Lord saves. That's the meaning of His name. Now, He doesn't save by waving some kind of magic wand over the problem of sin. No, he he pays for it with his own life, his own perfect life, and he forgives the sin of those who ask him to forgive. He saves, as his name says. The problem is this, not many people are asking for that salvation. Well, why? Well, most have chosen to pretend that there is no catastrophe, And if there is no catastrophe, then there's no need of salvation. The response of most people when it comes to this image of sin is, what adultery? That was just an error in judgment. That was just a simple mistake. That was just me being human, which they're right. It is just being human. But what they're saying is everybody does this. This is not spiritual adultery. This is just an oops, a mistake. You see, salvation, if we're ever going to accept it, first of all requires us to see God and our relationship with him as it really is. A catastrophe that has been ruined, been spoiled, been corrupted by our sin. You see, no marriage can be saved if the adulterer refuses to admit or even worse, excuses what they've done. And that's the same in our relationship with God. If, If we don't ever get to the point where we see it for what it is, then salvation is, is never going to be true of us. And this is the continental divide that separates all of humanity. You've probably seen signs like this if you've driven you know, through Colorado or even in the south. Every time you cross the continental divide on most highways and freeways, there's a sign that lets you know you're crossing the continental divide. And the continental divide is a physical divide that the, runs down the very middle of our continent. And it represents the fact that all of the water on the west side of that divide ends up in the Pacific Ocean. That's the watershed of that divide. All of the water on the east side makes its way into the Atlantic. And that divide, there's not a line painted, but it's a very clear divide that indicates which side the water goes. And I show you this sign because there is also a spiritual divide that runs down the middle of humanity. On one side of that divide are those who end up in eternal separation from God. They move on this side of the divide. The word for that in the Bible is hell. It just means eternity without God. On the other side of the divide are those who have accepted his offer of salvation, and their experience is eternity with God in heaven. The last scene of Revelation that we're going to look at next week. Now, we tend to think that the separating issue is not salvation, but our moral efforts. And it seems to us that what's going to make a difference in the end is the moral elevation that we have climbed to in life. And so most people are on that plan, the, the climbing plan. But you know, if, if you make it all the way to the continental divide and you're, let's say, at 7,000 feet, but you're on the wrong side of the divide, everything's going to go to the Atlantic and not the Pacific. I mean, moral efforts are great. Climbing and improving, that's great. But that's not the fundamental issue. So we do good deeds thinking that that'll be okay. But that's kind of like thinking flowers can fix adultery. It's like thinking that, you know, I'll I'll just buy a bunch of flowers. That'll make it all okay. I mean, buying flowers is fine. But it doesn't get at the scope of the real problem. So our moral efforts are good, but it doesn't understand the nature of what the real problem is between us and God and what's going on in this world. So the line that marks the great spiritual divide between heaven and hell is not the moral elevation of where anybody is. The line is simply those who have gotten on their knees before Jesus, admitted their sin, and asked for his forgiveness. And those who haven't. Those who have have seen the catastrophe for what it is. But on the other side are those who, they refuse to see it. They edit the evidence of their sin. They doctor the report to make it less than a catastrophe. But salvation is first and foremost the answer to a great catastrophe. Without that, the offer to salvation is irritating, and it's insulting. And if you're walking somewhere this afternoon and someone walks up to you and says, I can save you, and you look around and you think, I'm fine. No, really, I can save you. It doesn't take long for you to get irritated with that person and insulted by them because it doesn't look like you need any saving. And so a lot of people respond to the message of Christ with irritation. How dare you think I need saving? So the beginning of salvation, the opening scene, paints the catastrophe that salvation is the only answer for. And for those who have seen the catastrophe and asked for the salvation that is offered in Christ, the next scene we see is they're invited to a meal. That's the second scene in the overall scene of salvation, the invitation to a meal. Here's what we read in verse 9. Then the angel said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Now that seems like an interesting transition from a catastrophe to a wedding banquet. But as you think about it, if the problem that has corrupted us in this world is our spiritual adultery, it's very fitting that the salvation of God is celebrated at a wedding banquet. It's really more like a vow renewal ceremony where the vows that have been broken are restated and the past unfaithfulness is forgiven. Now, in typical Revelation form, this is not the first wedding reception we see in the Bible. This is the last one that we see. You know, The first miracle that Jesus performed took place at a wedding reception in Cana where water was turned into wine three of the parables that Jesus told took place at a wedding banquet. This is a predominant theme that you'll find in the New Testament. Now, the wedding banquet is interesting, and that is, it is the first of many meals that a new couple will have as husband and wife. It's probably the largest meal they'll ever have, but it's the first one of a new life together. And so, it's surprising to us that the common meal makes a regular appearance in the Bible. You know, on the day that God decided to save his people from captivity in Egypt, he instructed them first before that night happened to do what? To gather in their homes and share a meal called a Passover meal. And then, after that great, act of salvation and saving them from slavery in Egypt, they were told to gather at that anniversary and share a meal again every year to remember God's act of salvation, the Passover meal. And so many years later, it was at one of those such meals that Jesus had gathered with his disciples that was on the eve of his crucifixion. And they were told to do this in remembrance of him. Now, what's interesting about the common meal, the common family meal is is not primarily about food. It's primarily about relationships, right? I mean, when you gather with whoever you gather with, maybe family, maybe friends, this Thanksgiving, the food will be a major feature. But what makes that meal either delightful or irritating is the people around the table, right? Not the stuff on the table. Now, the stuff on the table is important, but it's the people around the table that make the meal. And that's why when God saves us, he calls us first to sit down and have a meal. And that's because salvation is first and foremost about repairing our relationship with him and then repairing our relationships with each other. So when it came to the salvation of Egypt out of slavery or Israel out of slavery in Egypt, yes, the Egyptian army did need to be faced and defeated. And when it came to the offer of Jesus Christ on the cross, his sacrifice, yes, Satan did need to be defeated. But before the war time, God says, let's let's first stop and share a meal together before we get to the war. So the point of salvation has always been to repair our broken relationship with God so that we might repair our broken relationships with each other. That's the message of the meal. And this is why the invitation to a meal precedes and follows the two great acts of God's salvation in the pages of the Bible. Act 1, when God saved his people from slavery in Egypt, points to Act 2, when Jesus offered his life as the final sacrificial lamb so that judgment might pass over us. Preceded by, followed by a meal. We are saved that we might love. Now, that's easy to forget in our busy lives. In fact, in our busy lives, increasingly, it's hard to even sit down for a family meal. So Jesus said on that night, that Passover night, on the eve of his arrest, before he offered his life as a sacrifice for us, he said to his disciples around that table, do this in remembrance of me. Do what? Do what he did with his disciples on that night. We read about it in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 25. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Well, how long should we keep doing this? The next verse, verse 26, says, For whenever... You eat this bread and drink this cup. You proclaim the Lord's death. For how long? Until he comes. We're going to keep doing this until he comes. You see, the meal described in Revelation is not a meal of remembrance. It's not this. Because Jesus will be at that meal. You don't have to remember somebody if you just open your eyes and there they are. But until he comes, until we can see him with our own eyes, we are to sit down And eat a smaller meal. Before we have that great meal of salvation, we have smaller meals of remembrance. Now, the key to remembering is to keep it simple. And that's a challenge because there's nothing simple about salvation. I mean, if you just want to talk about the catastrophe side, much has been written and can continue to be written about the nature of the catastrophe that is in this world and in our own hearts. Volumes have been filled describing the catastrophe. There's a lot of complexity in the catastrophe. And there's nothing simple about how God took on a body to save us. I mean, just the fact that he took on a body is a very complex idea, a challenge for us to understand. Salvation is very complex. So how do you simplify it? Well, it can really be simplified in two simple phrases. My body for you and my blood for you. That's what Jesus said. And if you're going to accept the salvation, all you need to do is accept that. You need to eat and drink. It symbolizes the acceptance of his body and his blood given for you. So I want to invite the ushers uh, to come forward. And we're going to, before we move on to part three, we're going to do part two. We're going to have this meal together. And I'm going to lead us in this, so as they pass out this, this little cup with both juice and a little piece of unleavened bread in there, go ahead and hold on to that. If you have personally not accepted this offer of salvation from Jesus, then don't take a cup. We're not going to single you out or embarrass you, but this is just for those who have decided to accept this offer. And we are doing this in remembrance of Jesus. Now, the act of eating the piece of unleavened bread and swallowing the juice is a symbol, it's a visual of our acceptance of the body and blood of Jesus given for our salvation. Now, just like it is with food, you don't need to have a degree in nutrition to be nourished by food, right? This, this Thursday, when you eat turkey, you don't need to understand all of the molecular structure of turkey to enjoy it and be nourished by it. You just have to swallow it, you have to eat it. The same thing is true with salvation. You don't need to understand everything in the Bible to be saved. You just need to accept Jesus Christ. But what we do need to do is take this meal seriously. We are warned in just a few verses after the ones in 1 Corinthians to not eat and drink this in an unworthy manner. What is an unworthy manner? How how would we do this in an unworthy way? Well, What this means is that if we are remembering the body of Jesus given for us and the blood of Jesus shed for us, and we're thanking him for salvation and his forgiveness, and then we turn around and we're unwilling to forgive somebody else? That's a disconnect. That's treating this in an unworthy manner. So if if there's someone that you need to forgive, if there's some relationship you need to take the next step in clearing up, then before you eat this little piece of bread or drink this juice, purpose in your heart to take that step this week and if you're not willing to do that, if you want to hang on to this, then, then don't, don't eat. We're not going to look at you, but just, just, just don't eat. Don't do this in an unworthy way. The other way we eat in an unworthy way is if, if there's a pattern of sin in our lives that we refuse to deal with, then we are eating this in an unworthy way. We're saying, thank you for the forgiveness, and I'm going to continue in my adulterous ways. <coughs> now, nobody's perfect. We all struggle. But if, if there's an area in your life that you know, God says, you, you need to stop this. You need to, you need to get help with this. You need to deal with this. And you just keep saying, nope, I'm going to keep doing this. If that's your heart, then, then don't do this. Just, just don't, don't do this in an unworthy way. So let's go ahead and, and peel back, first of all, the first area to get at that little piece of unleavened bread. And the reason it's unleavened, because that's what it was on the Passover, a little piece like this. The bread is a reminder of God's love, that God would take on a body to go to that distance to save us. I don't think we'll ever get over that. And we're remembering it by doing this. So in the words of Jesus, when he said, this is my body, which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. Now go ahead and peel back to get at the juice. The juice is a visual reminder of the blood of Christ. It's a reminder of the price that was paid for our salvation, our forgiveness. And so in the words of Jesus, when he said on that night to his disciples, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. This little piece of bread and this little bit of juice is the continental divide of salvation. Now, you can put these cups, I think there's little holders there and the uh, chairs in front of you and hang on to it and throw it away when we uh, leave today. But let's move on to part three. Part three of this great scene of salvation is a picture of the end of all war. As we Turn from the, the wedding meal. We notice that the bride in the wedding meal is dressed fittingly, but not the groom, not Jesus Christ. Here's a picture of Jesus Christ in Revelation 19, verse 11 through 14, and this seems really out of place with a wedding meal. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war, His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Now, the white horse and its rider, Jesus Christ, is making its second appearance. First appearance was in chapter 6 one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And so it turns out that the wedding reception is really a prelude to war. Now, it's hard to imagine a greater contrast than a wedding and a war, but that's the nature of salvation. It is a wedding and it is a war. Its aim is to restore an adulterous relationship. That's the wedding part and to defeat the author of every false love, Satan himself. That's the war part. Now, anyone who has been married understands that weddings and wars go together. I mean, the love that is declared on the wedding day must be fought for in the days that follow. Anyone who doesn't understand this doesn't get to be married for very long. You declare your love, and then tomorrow you must fight for it. And the day after that, it must be fought for again. You know, our culture has forgotten the war part of love. Our culture thinks love is primarily an emotion. And so our culture has made this notion of falling out of love a commonplace occurrence and a commonplace excuse for ending a marriage. But what we call falling out of love, God simply calls surrender, <laughs> giving up, refusing to fight. I mean, love is a war against a world full of competing loves. Love doesn't occur in a vacuum. It occurs in a corrupted world. So love must be fought for, and it must be rescued again and again. And again, by seeking and asking for forgiveness. It it is a lifelong campaign. But in this last word on salvation, God tells us of a day when this campaign, this war will finally end. There will be one last war. Now, it turns out, strangely enough, that this war against Satan is not a quick one. First, all of the political tools at Satan's disposal are brought onto the battlefield, and they're defeated one by one. And then Satan is locked up for a thousand years. But then he's set free again for one last hurrah, one last great battle, and he is finally defeated for the very last time. Now, as you read through this, You might ask the question I ask myself as I read through this is, why not just end it all at once? It's pretty obvious that God has the upper hand. Why all of these battles and this back and forth and 1,000 years of peace and then back at it again, why not just end it all at once? Well, I'm not really sure why. But I think it's because this is a war not for land, not for power, but for hearts. And hearts can't be conquered. They have to be given the freedom to respond to God, and that takes time. And at the end of this final battle, the focus, of course, is not on land won or on power secured, but on people. And we see a a tremendous image of people who are either saved or not saved at the end of this great war. Here's this description in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 12. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Now you notice there's two types of books that are opened up. The first is a collection of books. It says the books are open, plural. Well, what's in them? It says what they had done as recorded in the books, plural. So the, the reason there's so many books is because there's so many people and there's so many things that all those people have done. And in these books, plural are contained the full record of everything that everyone has done. Not the edited versions that we present to others, and honestly, that we present to ourselves, but the full record of what we have done. Next, the book, Single, of Life, is open. It's a single volume. So what's the difference between these two book categories? It's not the words that are written in these books. It's the ink that those words are written in. Now, what did Jesus say we are to remember when we drank that juice? He said, "This, this is the new covenant in my blood. A covenant is a written contract. The old covenant is a written record of God's law. And in the books... Next to every one of those laws, next to everything that God says is right and everything that God says is wrong is a record of whether we've done that or not done that, what we've done compared to God's law. And I don't have to tell you, but it does not make for encouraging reading. And that's why there's a new covenant. Now, the new covenant is not God saying, okay, I'm going to rewrite the laws to make them more doable for you. No, it's the same laws. The difference is that in a column that records what we have done, the ink is written in the blood of Jesus Christ. It's still sin. If we have sinned, there's a record of it. But it's written in the blood of Christ, which means it's forgiven. It's kind of like invisible ink. It's written down and then it's forgiven. It's forgiven because the blood of Jesus Christ is his perfect life given in exchange for our imperfect lives. Letter for letter, word for word, word, for word, deed by deed, forgiveness for everything. Everything that we've done is forgiven. Salvation is not God saying, no big deal to our adulteries. No, it's God saying, I will forgive you at a great cost to myself written in my blood. So that brings us back to the continental divide. The difference, again, it's not our moral elevation. It's not how far we've climbed. It's what book is our name in. Everybody's name is in the books. But only those who have accepted the salvation offered in Jesus Christ is in the, are in the book of life. And so we read in the last verse of chapter 20, at the end of the scene of salvation, this... If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now that, that is a somber note to end with. And I thought of trying to end this differently. But I realized that's where God ends this scene. And these are his final words on salvation. So I better not end it differently. And he does this because I think there's no greater joy and there's no greater horror than this, this line of salvation. So I just have to ask, which side of the salvation divider you want? Not, not what's your moral performance. That's an elevation question. But what have you decided about the offer of forgiveness in Jesus? What, where have you landed on that? Now, just like the signs that mark the physical continental divide, there is a sign that marks the spiritual divide. And this is what it looks like. It's just a cross. It's the cross of Christ. It doesn't look like much. It's empty because he's already died and risen again. But it is. The cross is the great divide of salvation that separates saved from not saved. Heaven from hell. Now, to most, that seems absolutely ridiculous. Most think of the cross as an ancient relic pointing to an old story of torture from the past. But that's not how we view it. 1 Corinthians 1.18 accurately says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, <laughs> it's our only hope. It's the power of God. So if you haven't landed on this, I'd encourage you to do the work to make your decision. If you need help with a decision, we can help. On the back of the connection card, there's a box you can check just how to become a Christ follower. We'd love to help if we can. If you have made that decision recently, we'd love to help you with that too. So you can check the box above it, my rec- recent decision to follow Christ. But whether you check these boxes or not, The issue is when the books are opened and the record is seen and read, it doesn't matter what everybody thinks about Jesus. It doesn't matter how we feel. It matters whether our name is written in the book of life. That's what's going to matter. And next week, we end this famous last word series by looking at just the most amazing view of all of what heaven is going to be like hope you can join us. Let's pray together. Father, we, um, we admit the catastrophe that has resulted from our sin. We feel it in our own heart. We see it in our relationships. And we definitely look out on the world and see it. And we thank you that you did not end your work with the final judgment but with the act of salvation we thank you Jesus for the willingness to take on a body and humble yourself and then offer that body not just to teach but to be beaten and whipped and die a long and torturous death on our behalf We pray for our neighbors and our friends, our co-workers who look at the cross as something silly and foolish. And oh God, we ask that you'd open their eyes. You'd help us to know what part we need to play in that. But we pause and we thank you for the offer of salvation and the gift that we've received in it. And we pray this now in your name, Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Dale. (coughs) Thanks, Bevan. I'm gonna have you take the